This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No a few months ago, I was at my desk working late, going through a list of people I wanted to interview for this podcast. Linda Tripp was one of the first people I had put on the list. I didn't have high hopes when I dialed her number, I wasn't even sure I had the right one. But then, after a couple of rings, Trip picked up. I recognized her voice. I remembered it from the 22 hours of tapes she made back in 1997, when she secretly recorded a series of phone calls in which her friend Monica Lewinsky talked about her tumultuous affair with the president. Well, you, have, you have a crappy personal situation, and you have a crappy professional situation. After I explained who I was and what I was doing, Trip told me that she did not want to be interviewed. She said it had been 20 years since all this stuff happened. She had a whole new life now that had nothing to do with Bill Clinton or Monica Lewinsky. I knew about this new life from stories I'd read about Tripp. She lived on a horse farm in rural Virginia, and she owned a year-round Christmas store with her husband Dieter, whom she spoke German with at home. It made sense that Tripp didn't want to reignite interest in her past. But I kept pushing, saying I wanted to get her side of the story. After a few minutes, Tripp said something to the effect of, there's no way you would ever get it right. And when I asked what she meant, she just started answering me. And suddenly, we were talking. About half an hour into the call, I realized that this could be my only shot at interviewing Tripp. And though it was clear to me that Tripp did not think we were in the middle of an interview, she did know that I was a journalist, and there had been no discussion of our conversation being off the record. So, without interrupting her, I started recording the call. We talked for another hour and a half after that, and she was being incredibly forthcoming, telling me about her relationship with Lewinsky, her motivations for taping her, and how she felt about her actions all these years later. I never revealed to Tripp that I was recording everything she was saying, or asked for her permission to start. At the end of the call, Tripp asked me if I'd consider keeping the conversation between us. Caught off guard, I responded vaguely, telling her that I wanted to sit down and talk properly, in person. Tripp said she would think about it. After we said goodnight, I turned off my tape recorder and stared at it. By this point, it was nearly 11 o'clock, and there was no one else left in the Slate office, which meant there was no one for me to go up to and say, guess what? I just secretly taped a phone call with Linda Tripp. Over the next couple of weeks, while Tripp weighed the possibility of an interview, I considered my options. Aside from Clinton and Lewinsky, Tripp was probably the most pivotal player in this whole saga. An ordinary person who made extraordinary choices that precipitated the entire impeachment crisis. And she had barely given any interviews in the years since. Legally, I was fine to use the tape. But was it ethical? 
Since I hadn't agreed to go off the record, I wouldn't be violating any journalistic rules. Also, this was Linda Tripp, the person who secured her place in history by surreptitiously taping her friend's desperate confessions and handing them over to federal prosecutors. A person who ensured that a young woman's most private moments would be described and dissected in newspapers and on TV screens around the world. If I used the tape, could Linda Tripp really object? And then in early June, Tripp called me back. And she said okay. I could come see her in Virginia. And if she got the sense that she could trust me, she would let me ask whatever questions I wanted. So, I went to Linda Tripp's horse farm. When my producer and I showed up, she offered to make us lunch. Wait, does any, are you guys want a sandwich real quick? It's like right around that time. When we sat down in Tripp's living room, she seemed nervous, like she was bracing herself for a root canal. On a shelf in the corner of the room, I noticed a row of books about the Clinton scandal. The Jeff Tubin one, the Michael Isikoff one, and almost all of them were brimming with little post-it notes. Tripp told me that each note corresponded to a factual error. Taken together, they were a testament to how misunderstood Tripp felt and how wrong she thinks we all were about her. Central casting couldn't have cast a better villain. The entire country had decided who I was, and it was evil incarnate. There was no chance to say, but wait, you don't know this or you don't know that. There was none of it. Yes, she had tried to take down the president, Tripp told me. But she didn't do it for political reasons or because she wanted to make money. Above all, the thing she wants everyone to understand is that she did not set out to betray Monica Lewinsky. Sitting here today, I have no clue what I thought was going to happen. It was sort of fuzzy, but there wasn't an organized master plan of what I was thinking. This was flying by the seat of my pants, terrified out of my wits, completely guilt-ridden that I was having to manipulate her, but convinced in my soul that in the end it would benefit her, that he would no longer be able to do this to her or to anyone else. As I listened to Tripp talk, I thought about whether I would have used my tape if she had turned down my interview request. Would I really have played it on this show for a million people to hear? Would I have convinced myself that it was the right thing to do? This is Slow Burn. I'm your host, Leon Nathan. No one wanted to become the sex police. She says to me, there's another story here, but it's not the one you think it is. They call me at 3 a.m. and show up with these tapes. Look, I can't lie under a... Episode 5, Tell All. Linda Tripp has always been a square. Growing up, she loved the Beatles, but she didn't care for any of the druggy albums. She preferred the early stuff, when they were still wearing suits. And her favorite band was the Dave Clark Five. Tripp considered herself one of their groupies. And the kind of groupie I was, was the kind who, you know, would have loved to have gotten a lock of hair. And when we did meet them, I had no idea what to say. At 14, uh, you're not even aware of what actual groupies might do. It was very, very innocent. Tripp got a job in the White House at age 41. She considered it an honor to come to work every day. And she admired George H.W. Bush and his wife, Barbara. She felt they treated the institution of the presidency with the respect it deserved. Tripp had been working in the White House for a year and a half when Bush lost his re-election bid. When Bill Clinton moved in, 
Tripp was immediately appalled. She didn't approve of his power-hungry wife or his young, zippy friends who ate pizza in the Oval Office late at night. Washington is interesting again. Clinton's personal aide, Andrew Friendly, is 24, which is still older than many White House staff. All that political power, and they can also program their own VCRs. Clinton had changed the culture of the White House, and Tripp couldn't stand it. I've been called a prude and a prig, and, and in some ways I think that's probably true. But that isn't, it wasn't the attire, it wasn't the way they comported themselves so much as what they were doing behind the scenes. There was no right or wrong. There was no respect for the rule of law. There was no rule that applied to the Clintons. I had a hard time getting Tripp to be more specific about what the Clinton people were doing behind the scenes that offended her so much. She mentioned that Hillary once made a comment that Tripp interpreted as disrespectful towards the military and that she swore too much for a first lady. But what really solidified Tripp's suspicious view of the Clintons seems to have been the death of Vince Foster. As you may remember from episode two, Tripp worked with Foster in the White House Counsel's office. She happened to bring him his last meal before he shot himself in 1993. Tripp had liked Foster. She saw him as one of the only members of the Clintons' inner circle who tried to do everything by the book. When his body was found... Tripp thought it was strange that everyone in the White House accepted right away that it was a suicide. I remember thinking, it's midnight, and so he's only been dead a few hours. How on earth does anyone know? They know the manner of death, but they don't know, how could they know that? Maybe I've watched too much Law and Order and read too much Agatha Christie, but the point is, it just struck me as bizarre that Suicide was front and center immediately. Tripp was disturbed by the aftermath of Foster's death. The whole investigation seemed rigged. Case in point, when law enforcement officials interviewed Tripp about Foster, she was accompanied by a lawyer who had been assigned to her by the Clinton administration. We were not allowed to be interviewed without the presence of a White House attorney, which essentially ensured that none of us would choose to say anything but the party line in their presence. And when the White House assigned me a lawyer from a white shoe law firm, I realized how deeply entrenched I was becoming in the Clinton cover-ups. Tripp came to harbor a profound contempt for the Clintons. Eventually, she was transferred from the White House to a better-paying job in the Pentagon. It was during her tenure there that she began to feel a responsibility to expose the Clinton administration's true nature. In 1996, she looked to one of her former colleagues for help in getting that message out. Tony Snow had gotten to know Tripp while serving as a speechwriter for George H.W. Bush. Since then, he'd become an anchor at the newly launched Fox News channel. Tripp told him she knew all kinds of stuff about the Clintons, and that she didn't want to stay silent anymore. Snow, who died in 2008, told Tripp that he knew a literary agent in New York named Lucianne Goldberg. Tony Snow is just the most delicious person in the world. Anybody that Tony had sent me, I knew was okay. They, you were automatically vetted if Tony sent Because he sent me several other people and they worked, they worked out. Goldberg's specialty was conservative nonfiction with a salacious edge. She had once sold a book about what really happened at Chappaquiddick. And she also represented Mark Furman the LAPD detective who found the bloody glove behind O.J. Simpson's house 
and who was once described by Simpson lawyer Johnny Cochran as a lying, perjuring, genocidal racist. Earlier in her career, Goldberg had worked for Richard Nixon's 1972 campaign. Her job was to spy on his opponent, George McGovern, by posing as a journalist and writing down bits of gossip she heard on the press plane. As Goldberg remembers it, Tripp wanted to write a book about Vince Foster, as well as the broader pattern of disgraceful behavior she had observed in the Clinton White House. She was a worker bee, and she was polite, and she was pleasant, and, you know, I had no reason not to believe her. Goldberg arranged for Tripp to start working with a ghostwriter, a conservative newspaper columnist who interviewed her for 20 hours before putting together a book proposal. But Tripp got cold feet when she read what the ghostwriter had come up with. I realized in looking at this that there was no way for me to prove anything I was alleging. I would lose everything, gain nothing, and um, become public for the rest of my life. Tripp remembers Goldberg being furious that she was pulling out of the book. But Goldberg told me that she didn't think much of the material anyhow. She sent me a few pages, and it just, I, I could see this was a project that wasn't going to fly. There wasn't enough stuff there. So I called Tony and thanked him for referring and blah, blah, did all this good agent stuff. Goldberg didn't expect to talk to Linda Tripp ever again. But then, about a year later, she got another call from Tony Snow. He called me and said, remember that woman I sent you that used to work for Vince Foster? Well, she's got an even bigger story. And I said, do you want to share it? And he said, not on these phones. (laughs) Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Linda Tripp and Monica Lewinsky first met in the spring of 1996, when Lewinsky was transferred against her will from the White House to the Pentagon. It was Lewinsky who first approached Tripp. She did so after noticing a collection of poster-sized photographs of Bill Clinton that Tripp had at her desk. These photos were known as jumbos, and they hung from the walls all over the White House. Lewinsky told her official biographer that Tripp had the jumbos because she wanted to appear loyal to the administration. Tripp told me that she was planning to use them for a presentation. In any event, the photos of Clinton caught Lewinsky's eye. On this particular day, she came back to my area and uh, saw the jumbos and immediately gushed over President Clinton. And I said, oh, you know him? And she said, oh, yeah, I was at the White House. And I mean, it became groupie-like from day one. Groupie-like. Lewinsky reminded Tripp of herself as a teenager, obsessing over the Dave Clark Five. Absolutely, 100% infatuated. She wasn't screaming, as I did in front of the TV screen. 
but it was as close to that as could be without actually screaming, almost jumping up and down with glee that he was this, he was so wonderful, oh my gosh, he was so handsome. There was a big age difference between Tripp and Lewinsky. Not quite as big as the one between Lewinsky and Clinton, but still substantial. One woman was in her early 20s, the other was in her late 40s. Tripp felt this difference acutely. She told me that she thought of Lewinsky as a child. You couldn't spend 10 minutes with Monica at that time in her life and not see a 14 to 15-year-old young girl before I knew anything about Bill Clinton. She was just very young. Lewinsky didn't tell Tripp right away that she was romantically involved with the president. In the beginning, she just said that she was seeing a married man who worked in the White House. According to Lewinsky's biography, it was only after Clinton's win in the 1996 election that Lewinsky let Tripp all the way in on the secret. Remember, when Lewinsky was transferred out of the White House, Clinton had promised her that he would bring her back as soon as he was reelected. Lewinsky held on to this promise and counted down the days until they would be reunited. Though Clinton called her on the phone during this period, he never made it possible for them to see each other. By election day, it had been more than six months since the two of them had been alone together. Lewinsky, who declined to be interviewed for this podcast, would later recall getting a haircut and picking out the clothes she would wear when she went to see Clinton after his victory. But that meeting didn't happen. I was crying uncontrollably, Lewinsky said later in an interview. I felt I had left the White House like a good girl. I hadn't made a fuss. A lot of women may not have been so compliant. I felt so betrayed and so disappointed. Lewinsky and Tripp were in the Pentagon cafeteria when Lewinsky confided in her friend that the married man she'd been having an affair with was the president himself. According to Lewinsky, Tripp said, I knew it. I knew you were the type of girl he would like. Now, tell me what happened. Tripp disputes this account. She told me that she was disgusted when she learned about the affair and did not express any enthusiasm about it. I didn't believe or didn't allow myself to believe at that point in time that he could have stooped this low. Because as I said, had you spent any time with her alone, you would feel like you were dealing with a child in a woman's body. In the months that followed, Tripp says she started to feel like her young friend's caretaker, as Lewinsky became increasingly consumed by her quest to win back Clinton's attention. There was nothing else in life. Everything else had ceased to exist. This was her 100%, 24-7 obsession. She lived for the encounters or any acknowledgement at all. And there came a point in time when even negative attention was acceptable, because at least it was attention. Though Clinton did not bring Lewinsky back to the White House after the election, he did continue calling her. Lewinsky's biography describes periodic phone calls when Clinton would tell her that they had to put an end to the affair. But then he would just call her again. This kept Lewinsky going. In February of 1997, Lewinsky told Clinton to look in the personal section of the Washington Post. She had taken out an ad addressed discreetly to Handsome, in which she had quoted a few lines from Romeo and Juliet and signed it, Happy Valentine's Day, M. Lewinsky thought Clinton appreciated the gesture, but then he started talking again about how they needed to break things off. Lewinsky remembers him saying, I don't want to hurt you like all the other men in your life have. But after that, they had phone sex, and he promised to be in touch again soon. Later that month, Clinton's personal secretary, Betty Curry, invited Lewinsky to come to the White House to watch the president record his weekly radio address. 
Lewinsky arrived wearing a blue dress from the Gap, and Curry led her to a study off of the Oval Office once Clinton was done taping. In that study, Lewinsky was alone with the president for the first time in nearly a year. During this visit, Clinton gave her a copy of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, the same book he'd given Hillary Rodham at the start of their relationship 26 years earlier. Then Clinton took Lewinsky into a bathroom, where she performed oral sex on him. Clinton broke his old rule and allowed her to bring the process to its natural conclusion. When Lewinsky came home that night, she tossed her blue dress in the closet without noticing it had a stain on it. By the spring of 1997, Lewinsky was giving Linda Tripp near-constant updates on the state of her relationship with Clinton. Tripp says that what she heard during these conversations gave her the unmistakable impression that Lewinsky was being abused by a predator. I mean, how it was presented to the country initially is how it continues to be referred to today, which is an affair, the Lewinsky affair. But by virtue of using that word, one assumes it was in some way, an actual relationship of sorts. Romantic, physical, whatever, it was a relationship, which couldn't be farther from the truth. What it was was a series of encounters to address a physical need, a use of a young girl, and then the sort of cold, hard dismissal of her on any human level. Just as she'd been in the years after Vince Foster's suicide, Tripp was seized with the feeling that she needed to intervene and expose the president. This desire intensified, Tripp says, after an incident that took place around the 4th of July. She had told Clinton the weekend of July 4th of 97 that I knew everything. That was a big deal. She didn't realize how big a deal that was. But knowing the Clintons, I knew that from that day forward, it was very possible that a Mack truck was in her future and my future. That is going to sound completely melodramatic to anyone who wasn't there. But I can tell you it was not melodramatic and it was a real fear. You would be killed. I think I would have had an accident. I think I, yes. I couldn't find any independent confirmation that Lewinsky told Clinton in July of 1997 that Tripp knew about their relationship. In fact, I found a transcript of a conversation between Tripp and Lewinsky that took place the following winter, in which Tripp specifically asserts in reference to Clinton, he doesn't know I know about you. Regardless, Tripp told me she remembers becoming scared for her life and thinking that she had to go public before something terrible happened. Once again, Tripp asked her friend Tony Snow to arrange a call with literary agent Lucianne Goldberg. She proceeded to tell me about this girl that she worked with then at the Pentagon and that she was 23 years old. And so she started giving me all the details. And I said, you know an awful lot about this girl. I mean, how do you know all these, like snapping the thong and that stuff? For Linda to know a tiny detail like that, I thought, you know, you really, how are you getting this information? She told me, well, I talked to her, you know, three or four times a day. If I don't talk to her in the office, I talk to her on the phone at night. Goldberg knew this was explosive material, but she wanted more. Do you have any way to prove this? I mean, this all sounds great, but do you have any way to prove that this is a romance or this is, you know, bigger than just a mild flirtation? And she said, well, no, I don't. And I said, well, you talked to her on the phone, right? And she said, yeah. And I said, okay, 
go down to Radio Shack and buy a tape recorder. It costs about 50 bucks and plug it into your phone. This was a dramatic step. The moment when Tripp made the decision to unequivocally betray her friend's trust. When I asked Goldberg why she thought Tripp went along with her plan, she said it was obvious. Tripp was fond of Monica and wanted to protect her. She was just, she was a big-hearted woman, that's all. I don't think it's any more complicated than that. And I don't think it was political. You don't think she was, she wanted the, sort of the world to see who this guy was? Oh, sure, we all did. I know I did. I wanted people to see what a rat fang Clinton was. I mean, he was terrible about women. You say rat fang? Rat fang. I don't even know that phrase. A, a rodent type creature. <laughs> Goldberg told me she has no regrets about telling Tripp to start taping. Well, I think the thing that most people have asked me is, why did you do it? And the answer is, why the hell not? Here you've got this good-looking, charismatic president having an affair on the rug that has the great seal of the United States in his office. A room that, as they said, Reagan wouldn't walk into without a jacket. And it was it was just it was overwhelming. It was appalling. We, you know, nobody ever heard. At least I hadn't heard anything like that. Hi. How'd you know it was me? Same caller ID. Oh, what's it say? Linda Tripp. It does. Yeah. I have an unpublished phone. The idiots. How was your dinner? Oh, I, I just got know? back from the gym. Oh, oh my God! You good girl. Tripp installed her voice-activated recorder in early October of 1997. In the conversations that followed, many of which were later made public by the House Judiciary Committee, Tripp steered Lewinsky very deliberately into areas that might yield details about her affair with Clinton. While Tripp expressed some exasperation with Clinton during these calls, she consistently and deliberately encouraged Lewinsky's obsession with him. I mean, when this first happened, I mean, I said to my mom, I said, well... He, I think he just pulled around with me because his girlfriend was probably furloughed. You idiot. <laughs> I'm not kidding you, that's what I Arguably the most consequential thing Tripp did during the recorded phone calls was give Lewinsky professional advice. Lewinsky had decided that she wanted a new job outside of government and that she would enlist the president's help in her effort to find one. When Lewinsky talked about these plans, telling her Clinton owed her something for the pain he had caused her and urging her to be clear with him about her demands. I'm just saying, you know, you can also hold his feet to the fire just a little bit. It's if, if what he comes up with doesn't appeal to you, yeah. the ultimate thing is that this is your last hurrah. You better get something out of it that's, you know, that you can stick with. Because this is a good stepping stone. It's not many times that you're going to have someone of that stature opening a door for you. Yeah. Later, Tripp helped Lewinsky compose a letter to the president. Okay. The first line, it's been made clear to me that there's no way I'm going to be able to come back to the White House. Is that okay? I would put despite your best efforts. Yeah, that's good. While I understand why it's not possible for me to return, I need you to understand that I'm extremely yes. under-challenged and unhappy in my current position. This and then you might like say, I need to be focusing elsewhere. Let him know that this is truly time-sensitive. Clinton did try to help Lewinsky find a job by putting her in touch with his close friend Vernon Jordan, a power broker with the kinds of connections that come in handy in a job hunt. Jordan met with Lewinsky and arranged for her to be interviewed for positions at several companies, including Revlon, where he was a board member. 
These job interviews would later become central to Ken Starr's investigation into whether Clinton and his protectors had tried to buy Lewinsky's silence. When I asked Tripp about the three months she spent secretly taping her calls with Lewinsky, she didn't deny that she had engaged in a truly villainous form of deception. But she insisted that it was a means to an end, and that she hated every second of it. There wasn't a thing about those three months that were authentic. Everything prior to that was. But I needed everything to be recreated, and it was beyond manipulative. Did I want to do that? Not necessarily, but I felt like I had no choice. Within a few weeks of installing her recording device, Tripp visited Lewinsky at her apartment in the Watergate. There, Lewinsky showed Tripp the stained blue dress hanging in her closet. By this point, Lewinsky had noticed the stain and pieced together its origins. After the visit, Tripp told Lucianne Goldberg about the dress. Goldberg wanted to know whether Clinton's DNA could be recovered from the fabric. She put the question to her client, Mark Furman, the former LAPD detective from the O.J. Simpson trial. Furman assured Goldberg that getting a DNA sample would be no problem. I had originally heard it was a cocktail dress, and then later I heard it was from The Gap, much less glamorous. I wanted it to be, you know, full of marabou feathers and that kind of thing, but nah, just The Gap. By this point, Goldberg was not the only person that Linda Tripp was sharing such tidbits with. The other was Michael Isikoff, the reporter who had written the first major story about Paula Jones for The Washington Post three years earlier. Isikoff worked at Newsweek now, and he was still very much on the Clinton scandal beat. Tripp had started talking to Isikoff in the spring of 1997. Back then, Isikoff had been trying to nail down a story about yet another woman with whom Clinton was alleged to have behaved inappropriately. Isikoff had heard about this woman from one of Paula Jones's lawyers, and Tripp was said to be a potential witness. I knew the particular office that Linda Tripp worked and uh, wandered down and just approached her at her desk and told her who I was. I told her there was a matter I wished to talk to her in some confidence. She looked at me suspiciously and warily and said, why don't you wait out there? I'm going to have a cigarette break in uh, a few minutes and I'll come talk to you then. So they talked. And Isikoff didn't find the exchange to be particularly useful. But then, at the end of their conversation, Tripp got Isikoff's attention. As I was leaving, she says to me, I should tell you, you're barking up the wrong tree. There's another story here, but it's not the one you think it is. Which, needless to say, <laughs> say what? And uh, she said, that's all I'm going to tell you now. But um, there it was. There's another story here, but it's not the one you're thinking of. After that, Isikoff started cultivating Tripp as a source, eager to learn more about her other story. Eventually, Tripp revealed everything that the president was having an affair with a former intern, that her name was Monica Lewinsky, and that for the past several months, she'd been telling Tripp all kinds of details while a tape recorder captured her every word. Not long after, Tripp told Isikoff about Lewinsky's stained blue dress. Tripp even offered to steal it for him so he could get it tested, but Isikoff declined. Tripp understood the importance of the dress, and in conversations with Lewinsky, she made every effort to prevent her from spoiling its integrity. The navy blue dress. Now, 
All I would say to you is, I know how you feel today, and I know why you feel the way you do today. But you have a very long life ahead of you, and I don't know what's going to happen to you. Neither do you. I would rather you had that in your possession if you need it years from now. That's all I'm going to say. I'm telling you, I would say this to my own daughter, but... I'll think about it. All right. Towards the end of 1997, Linda Tripp introduced another element into her plot to bring down Bill Clinton. Tripp understood that what she knew about Monica Lewinsky could bolster Paula Jones' sexual harassment case by showing that Clinton had repeatedly engaged in sexually inappropriate behavior with his subordinates. Because it establishes a pattern of behavior that otherwise, I believe, wouldn't have had credibility. So he was still doing, in the midst of a sexual harassment lawsuit, still doing essentially the same thing that he was being accused of and charged with. And the arrogance of that decision showed me that he was never, ever going to stop. I would bet to this day he hasn't stopped. But I was eager for this information to fall into the hands of the Paula Jones attorneys. Tripp desperately wanted Jones's legal team to subpoena her so that she would be legally obligated to go public with what she knew. To make this happen, Tripp turned, as usual, to Lucianne Goldberg, who brokered an introduction to the Jones lawyers and even helped Tripp find a lawyer of her own who was close with them. Jim Moody became Tripp's lawyer during the very first days of 1998. Moody was a fixture in conservative circles in Washington, and among his friends was a group of high-powered attorneys who had secretly been helping with the Jones lawsuit as it made its way to the Supreme Court. These attorneys have come to be known in Clinton lore as the Elves. One of them, George Conway, is now better known as the insubordinate husband of White House advisor Kellyanne Conway. Another was Ann Coulter. She and Tripp's new lawyer, Jim Moody, had become friends through a shared love of music. We were both deadheads. And so I met him. I think it was my internship at Department of Justice, and somebody said, probably a Federal Society event, and somebody said, oh, I know another conservative deadhead. And by the way, there are scores of us. But that's how I met him, and so we started going to dead shows together. One night, Moody got together with George Conway shortly after taking possession of the audio tapes that Tripp had been making for the previous three months. The two men were eager to listen to them. But before they did, they called Coulter at home and invited themselves over. So Conway called me. It was like three in the morning. And he said, and... And Moody is brilliant. He's MIT. He helped design the cruise missile system. He skis. He's legally blind. So he's sitting with his 1950s tape recorder with the most valuable evidence anyone will ever have in the history of the world. And he's like randomly pushing buttons. And Conway lunges at him and says, you could hit the record button. We're going to Coulter's house. Why Coulter's house? Because Coulter had an incredible stereo system with a tape deck, which she used to listen to The Grateful Dead. So they call me at 3 a.m. and show up with these tapes, and we sat by my speakers and listened to a few of the smoking gun tapes, and then we had Walkmans and listened to a few more individually. Once the Paula Jones elves joined forces with Linda Tripp, everything escalated extremely quickly. First, the Jones team served both Tripp and Lewinsky with subpoenas, which meant both women would have to testify under oath. Lewinsky was blindsided by this, and she began to strategize with Tripp about what the two of them might say. 
they can't have anything. Even if they bring someone, they could bring somebody up. And all I have to say is, look, it didn't happen. This person is politically motivated. Nobody saw anything, so nobody could know. Monica, someone has told them something. Now, do we think that that's a little something or a lot something? Do they have specifics to ask us? We don't know this. Lewinsky went into a panic when she received the subpoena, and she told Clinton's friend Vernon Jordan about it. Though it didn't exactly fall under Jordan's mandate of helping Lewinsky find work, he arranged for her to speak to a lawyer, and even drove her to the lawyer's office. There, Lewinsky prepared an affidavit stating, I have never had a sexual relationship with the president. Three days after Christmas, Lewinsky visited Clinton in the Oval Office and talked to him about the Jones case. According to Lewinsky, she mentioned that her subpoena had specifically requested she turn over any gifts the president had given her. That afternoon, Betty Curry drove to Lewinsky's apartment and picked up a cardboard box. As the Office of the Independent Counsel would later detail, the box contained souvenirs that Clinton had bought Lewinsky from the Black Dog Store in Martha's Vineyard, as well as a hat pin and a framed photograph of Clinton and Lewinsky bearing the president's autograph. Across the top of the cardboard box, Lewinsky had written, Please do not throw away. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Slow Burn listeners. As I tell you every week, Slow Burn is a production of Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. As I prepared to tell you that this week, I got to wondering, if Slate didn't have a membership program, would this podcast even exist? If I had asked my bosses last year to let me spend a bunch of months making a podcast miniseries about Watergate, would they have said yes? So to find out, I actually asked my real boss, Slate's editor-in-chief, Julia Turner, who is here to provide an answer. Hi, Leon. Hey, Julia. As you know, I would love to uh, give you unlimited months to research whatever your heart desires because of my infinite faith in your abilities. <laughs> However, part of my job as editor-in-chief is to figure out how uh, we make these things work as a business. And the amount of work that goes into these eight episodes of Slow Burn, that's a lot more months of manpower that go into these eight episodes that go into a typical eight episodes of my weekly Culture Gap Fest, for example. And the way we're able to commit that time is because there's some set of advertisements we run against Slow Burn, but also lots of your Slow Burn listeners who are legion because of the excellence of the show are so hooked. They want the plus episodes. So without Slate Plus, it'd be a lot harder to give you the time to make this show as great as it is. That all makes sense to me. Uh, I hope it makes sense to our listeners. If you're already a member of Slate Plus, thank you so much. And if you're enjoying the podcast but are not yet a member, please sign up. It costs only 35 bucks for your first year, and it comes with a host of great perks. As Julia mentioned, there are bonus episodes every week that include behind-the-scenes stuff and exclusive interviews. And you can try it all for free for two weeks by going to slate.com slash slowburn. Okay, back to the show. It was around this same time December of 1997, that one of Paula Jones's elves reached out to a law school buddy of his who worked in Ken Starr's office as a prosecutor. In a carefully planned conversation, the elf revealed to his friend that the president was having an affair with a former intern. 
Clinton was trying to buy her silence, the elf said. And best of all, there was a witness who had everything on tape. The star team quickly put out word that Linda Tripp should get in touch with them. And on Monday, January 12th, 1998, Tripp called one of the prosecutors at his office and told him her story. And what did you think was going to happen after you told them? I had no idea. I had hoped that they would take this on. I thought of them as the white hats who would come and save me from the black hats. I really thought uh, that they represented law enforcement that could actually do something. Because in my uh, quandary earlier, I remember thinking, well, I can't go to the FBI and I can't go to the Justice Department um, because essentially they're owned by Bill Clinton. So where do I go? Never thinking of the independent counsel. But now that I was told that they would be receptive should I decide to call, I was hoping they would take it and run with it. With what aspect of it, though? All of it. All of it. That night, three of the prosecutors and an FBI agent drove to Tripp's house and interviewed her. They were there for hours, sitting on a couch in her living room, grilling her about what she knew and what she had. I had just taken down my Christmas tree. The house was just sort of back to being non-Christmas And um, here I have FBI special agents and prosecutors sitting in my living room. And while I still believe they were the White Hats at that point, I had no illusion that they were my buddy. I was nothing but a witness, and I was there to be vetted. It didn't take long for reporter Michael Isikoff to find out that Starr's team was looking at Lewinsky. On Thursday, January 15th, he called them to ask about it and started preparing to write a story that he hoped would appear in the upcoming issue of Newsweek. It was the following day that Starr's prosecutors arranged for Linda Tripp to meet Monica Lewinsky at the Pentagon City Mall for lunch. There, FBI agents confronted Lewinsky and told her she was facing prison time unless she did as they asked. Linda Tripp stood a few feet away as all this happened and assured Lewinsky that the agents had done the same thing to her. I remember lying to her because I couldn't be honest. I just couldn't face her and say, I did this to you. Even though I believed it was the right thing, I couldn't. I couldn't face her because I knew she would never in a million years understand. I kept holding on to thinking that had that been my daughter, I would want to have had someone stop it. And kind of like ripping a Band-Aid off a a wound. It has to be done. It's not something you enjoy. But you do what you have to do. But there was no enjoyment in it. None. A few months after my interview with Tripp, I called her to do some fact-checking and to come clean about the fact that I had secretly recorded our first conversation. Asking, you know, I was asking you questions, you were answering them, and I was like, this might be this might be it. This might be my interview, right? And I, I don't know if she's ever going to pick up the phone again after I call her. Mm-hmm. So I started recording the call. That's fine. <laughs> I and, assume, uh, to be honest, I assume anytime I speak to any member of the press, that's being recorded. Wow, okay. So, <laughs> I was so nervous to tell you that, Linda. Uh-uh. Because I, and I, and no, I, you've got to do your job. And I told you it doesn't really matter to me how this comes across in terms of how I'm perceived because 
uh, somehow I, I'm more concerned that you understand what I'm saying than your listeners. Mine's a small world. So what the great vast majority out there believe in the end isn't necessarily such a big deal to me. I'm really relieved that you that you're not that you don't feel angry that I recorded the call because because I tell honestly, me who deserves that more anyway. I told Trip about how I'd gone back and forth about using the tape because you know remember we left it at you're going to think about it and while yeah. you, while you, know, you thought about it for I think two weeks or so three weeks or something yeah and during that time I was like okay well if she says no do I use right. this tape do I use the tape you know yeah we hadn't set off the record. I would have. <laughs> I look at it this way. You have to assume that that's being done. You have to own your own words, no matter w- under what circumstance you happen to be speaking them. I had thought that taping Linda Tripp without her knowledge was a violation of her trust. She seemed to think that it had brought us closer together. Well, see, now maybe you have a little piece of understanding of what my dilemma was. Because I knew I could use what I had to give to... Um, whether it was Lucianne to publish this and get it out, whether it was Isikoff, whether it was the FBI. I didn't know where it was going to end up. But to say it was distasteful, to this day I have enormous guilt about doing that. And of all the people I care about understanding, she's the one I wish I could convince. And uh, that'll never happen, so... And the rest is all kind of white noise. So listen, send me that link and how I listen. I don't even know how to do iTunes, so I'll have to figure it out. I now, I'm assuming you need Wi-Fi, which I now have. Next week on Slow Burn, the scandal erupts into public consciousness. The Christian right mobilizes in response and a war breaks out in the media between Clinton's supporters and those who saw the scandal as a reason, or perhaps just an opportunity, to finally bring down Clinton's presidency. He has disgraced himself, he's disgraced the office, and he should resign. Slow Burn is a production of Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You can sign up for Slate Plus to hear bonus episodes of the show. In this week's bonus episode, you'll hear an extended interview with Ken Starr, the independent counsel who spent years investigating Whitewater until something more exciting came along. We're trying to get to the bottom of this. These are very serious allegations. And again, the allegations echoed with what we uh, suspected in the Arkansas phase of the investigation, which was that the president had lied under oath. This episode of Slow Burn is produced by me and Andrew Parsons, with editorial direction by Josh Levine and Gabriel Roth. Our researcher is Madeline Kaplan. Our theme song is by Spatial Relations. And this episode featured music by Nick Sylvester of God Mode. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. TJ Raphael is the senior producer for the Slate Podcast Network. Thanks to the NBC News Archives and C-SPAN for the archival audio you heard in this episode. For a full bibliography of all the works we consulted while making this episode, check out our show page. For script notes and all kinds of other help, we want to thank Ava Lubell, Shirley Chan, Jonathan Zuckerman, Max Abelson, Lisa Larson-Walker, Jeff Friedrich, Benjamin Frisch, Mary Wilson, Andrew Kahn, Joe Coscarelli, Pierre Bienname, and Camilla Hammer. See you next week. This is the story of the one. 
As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.